You are like, what's tomorrow gonna be like? What will people think of me? You're gonna be blind to what's right in front of you. Forever is comprised of nows. Emily Dickinson, bitch. What's it all about? My iconic jerk. I was visiting my friend Ted, and I saw a framed Annie Dillard quote on his wall that I've never forgotten. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. It kind of rocked me, the reminder that our days both run out and add up to something. A day feels disposable. Who cares how one is spent? But multiply your last 24 hours times 28,000, the average number of days we get. Does that seem like a good life? Annie Dillard comes back to me all the time. Do you really want your life to be that much TV, that much gaming? Remember my talk with Kumail? You can hear Annie Dillard's influence there. If your life is a pie chart, your whole life from birth to death, what chunk of that is going to be games by the end? Ooh, it'll probably be something significant. It won't be one of those things where they can't fit it into the wedge, right? It'll... No, no, you'll see the color. You'll see what color it is. It's a lot of pressure, really. What day is worth living 28,000 times? How do I spend my days? I spend my days worrying about that goddamn quote. I'm Daniel Kaufman. Welcome to the Myoclonic Jerk Podcast. This one is about the long view trying to get outside our tiny eyes and lives to see the bigger picture. We'll look at the beginning and end of the universe with NASA astronomer Michelle Thaller and physicist Sean Carroll. Then we'll zoom in onto Earth with hardcore historian Dan Carlin. From there, we'll look at individual lives with poker player Annie Duke. Hal Hirschfield will explain how we battle with our own selves. And Gabrielle Ottengen will show how positive thinking has negative results. Comedian Jimmy Dore returns to recount an exchange with a disgruntled audience member, and much more. Lots of stuff. Let's get to it. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown, and things seem hard or tough, and people are stupid, obnoxious, or daft, and you feel that you've had quite enough. Just remember that you're standing on a planet that's evolving and revolving at 900 miles an hour. That's orbiting at 90 miles a second, so it's reckoned a sun that is the source of all our power. The sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see are moving at a million miles a day. In an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour, the galaxy we call the Milky Way. Okay, listen. In the first portion of the show, I am going to display a lot of ignorance, and I'm a little embarrassed about that, but there might be a lot of other people who roughly know as much or as little as I do and will benefit from this. So for those of you who are well-versed in science, forgive me and go easy with the mocking. 
Astronomy is not the study of the distant. There's no separation between us and the expansion of the universe and the Big Bang and the nature of time. It's the study of things that are just right on the tip of your nose, not things that are light years away. Michelle Thaler is an astronomer at NASA. She's the narrator of the lovely Atlantic short, We Are Dead Stars. When we say that the universe is expanding, my mind has a tough time getting around the idea that there's an edge of the universe or a shape to the universe that is growing. No, it's not like that. There's so many misconceptions. There's no center to the universe. If there is any larger shape or edge to it, we are completely unaware of it. The Big Bang happened about 13.8 billion years ago, and the universe has been expanding since then. And what this means is there's a time limit to how far away in space you can see because you're looking to a time when the universe was so dense it was opaque. Mm -hmm. If you look at something 10 billion light years away, you're seeing it as it was 10 billion years ago. The farthest away radiation we've ever detected is from about 300,000 years after the Big Bang. And this is the famous microwave background radiation. We really can't see any farther away than that. And in that volume, the galaxies are not expanding away from any central point. Just every single point in space is expanding away from every other point. I've always conceived of it as this centrally emerging thing. Okay. This idea of a center has been an ongoing struggle in astronomy between the scientists and the lay people first thinking it was the Earth and then thinking it was the sun, and now you're telling us there's no center whatsoever. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Just won't let us have a center. You know, I was willing to move it to the sun or somewhere else, but no center is uncomfortable. When you ask a question, you really have to let go of your ego as to where that question's going to lead. It leads us farther and farther away from thinking that we're in the center of anything. As I look at everything around me in the universe, it all looks like it's expanding away from me. Mm -hmm. But if you're sitting on the Andromeda galaxy, you see the same thing. Everywhere in space appears to be the middle of the expansion. And that just means there isn't any center. When we say it's expanding, we're talking about the matter from the Big Bang. But the inky void, isn't that just there for all time? There's no void. How can there... (laughs) A void implies that there's empty space you can fly out into. And that's not the thing with the Big Bang. The Big Bang is not that there was a hot, dense mass of something that expanded into empty space. The Big Bang was all of space, too, wrapped up in this tiny little volume. There was nothing to expand into. Space itself is expanding. You can't have an outside to space. And yes, that's a philosophical problem. Right. (laughs) We don't know if the universe was tiny or infinite at that point. All we know is that it was very hot and very dense, and it changed. We can't say anything about the true size. I I just can't conceive of it. So the universe, there's no shape to it. So it is, as far as we know, eternal, spatially? I don't like infinities. I don't like the idea that because we can't see the edge, it must be infinite. Think about how many times we've fallen into that trap. Oh, we can't see the edge of the ocean, so it must go on forever. The sky, the sky must go on forever. There hasn't been enough time. Our view is not big enough. We can't see any inkling of an edge or boundary to the universe, but by no means does that mean there isn't one. But if there is an edge, what is beyond the edge? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the million-dollar question, right? Can there be higher dimensions in space and time, ones that I can't shine a flashlight into, that I'm not aware of in any way, except that if the universe is expanding, does that somehow imply there are these other volumes? It is going into something. The entire fabric of our universe could be going into another different dimensional space. And because I'm a three-dimensional creature, I cannot go there. Everywhere that there is space and time is bending and stretching. What's beyond it? That's something we love to think about in modern cosmology. I'm loving it and hating it at the same time. If only we had some evidence. I want some proof of this stuff. This is largely theoretical still. 
Well, we know the universe is expanding and there's heavy implications that there are more than the dimensions that we're aware of. And this may explain a lot about how the natural forces work. For example, gravity is so weak compared to the other natural forces. Right now, gravity would like to accelerate me to the very center of the Earth, but that's not happening because all of the electromagnetic repulsion of the atoms in the floor are holding me up. And that's much stronger than gravity. Mm-hmm. If you do the equations of these forces, but you assume there are more than the three spatial dimensions we're aware of, you can get the laws of gravity to behave very much like the laws of electromagnetism. It's this wonderful little clue. There may be different sorts of space and even different sorts of time that we're not aware of yet. We're little creatures and we're just getting little hints. All right, I have another question that I'm probably going to regret. (laughs) It's mind blown. (laughs) You've been saying that the universe at the point of the Big Bang, it's not just space and matter that it's expanding, but time. And that is news to me as well. There was not an eternity before the Big Bang. The Big Bang was the origin of time itself. Yeah, our understanding of time. Stephen Hawking talks about this quite a bit. What happened before the Big Bang is probably the wrong question to ask. Time as we understand it began at that point. There may be other definitions of space and time. There may be, in fact, more than one way to have a time-like dimension. Einstein gave us this wonderful legacy that space and time are really the same thing. He means that literally. There's a fabric, and he calls it space-time. Space and time really are wrapped together, and one doesn't exist without the other. It's an illusion of ours Mm -hmm. that there's a difference between those. So if there are multiple dimensions that we're not aware of, there could be different sorts of not only space, there could be different types of time that we're not aware of. But our definition of time in this universe began at the Big Bang, yes. Do you ever feel frustrated that we're just scratching the surface of these enormous questions (laughs) that we're probably not going to, in our lifetimes, get very far into? I mean, the wonder of it is amazing and fun, but there must be another part of you that's like, oh, I wish I could find out what they're going to find out in a thousand years. I don't want to be immortal, but I would so love to hang around and find out how this all plays out. Uh Hopefully I can stick around a little longer, (laughs) but I don't think there'll ever be an end. People a million years from now are going to have all of this cool knowledge and they'll be going, oh, crap, I can't be around long enough to see this problem solved. Right. There'll always be more to find out. Yeah. No, I mean, if we look back a thousand years, we can feel really fortunate that we're here now. Oh, yeah. We can always look in either direction and be happy or sad. What amazes me is just how clever the ancient people were. I'm a huge fan of this guy named Aristarchus. He lived 2,300 years ago and figured out that the Earth was not the center of the solar system. By looking at lunar eclipses, by looking at very careful angles on the sky, the evidence is right there in front of us. And it's just amazing to me what knowledge can be gained and then lost and then regained. So there's probably a cycle to that as well. I'm a part of a segment of society. We love and respect science, but we don't really know it intimately. And so we trust you and we'll accept everything you tell us about how the universe works, not really comprehending it all the time. Are you ever tempted to sneak in a lie to people because you know you have their total trust? (laughs) Oh, yeah, we have fire ants on Mercury. That's the thing. (laughs) No, absolutely not. All right. So I can trust everything you say. (laughs) Yes, you can. I'm very comfortable with the words I don't know. There's this false idea that we're sure of some of the things that we talk about. Somebody will say, Mm -hmm. do you think Einstein's equations are true? The answer is they're the closest thing to truth we have now. But that doesn't mean we don't think there's some very important corrections coming in the future. We basically just stuck our heads out of caves. I'm urging everyone to see the We Are Dead Stars video that you made. I'll put a link up to it on the website. But what I want to talk to you particularly about is that last minute where you talk about that people believe that the stars are eternal. But you say that's not true, that one day all the stars will be gone. 
Well, we know that single stars live and die. Right. Stars burn hydrogen into helium. Eventually, there'll be no more usable hydrogen for the stars to burn, and there will be no more stars forming. And if the universe really does extend for an infinite amount of time into the future, then there's an infinite amount of darkness ahead. This blew my mind. I knew that the universe is expanding, but I always had the sense that there was a cyclical nature to it, that stars burn out and new stars are born, that like human beings live and die and new ones are born. And I just thought the universe would go that way and maybe it expands and expands and at some point would contract and it would be an endless succession of big bangs and contractions. But you're saying that's not the case. That's not the case according to the information we have now. The data we have now suggests that the universe will just expand into nothingness. I mean, almost literally, and everything will go dark. Right now, we can't see anything that would bring the universe back together and do another Big Bang. Does that mean that it will not? I'm not willing to say that yet. You know, there are fruit flies that live only for one day. Mm -hmm. To them, there's this dawn and this wonderful light, and then everything fades to darkness, and the universe ends every day. So is there some larger cycle that we haven't seen? Huh. So at first, when I listened to this, I imagined that once the stars are gone, all of life is gone. But you imagine future worlds living on in the darkness with myths about the time when there was light in the sky. Well, sure. I mean, what you need is energy. And at that point, when all the stars go off, and we're talking in many trillions of years, there will still be the corpses of stars, neutron stars and black holes. And these can be used as energy sources, almost like a particle accelerator. And you could basically have a civilization that powered itself that way. That could last for a very long time. But even that doesn't last forever. Uh Every single source of energy we can think of seems to have some end to it. (laughs) That's so hard to wrap my mind around the idea (laughs) that the universe itself has a life and then that will end and then the universe will just be some floating debris and darkness for all. Darkness forever. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of discussion about this. There are some amazing physicists at Caltech like Sean Carroll that have done a lot of work about what that end state would be like. Once the universe came to absolute, he calls it thermal equilibrium, there's no difference for anything anywhere. Everything is just at extremely low temperatures. Every particle is so far away from every other particle, it could never interact. The universe began in this very strangely low entropy state. Right around the Big Bang, everything had to be perfectly balanced. Otherwise, the universe would have collapsed immediately or expanded so fast that no matter would ever have been able to form. And we wonder why things were in that very low entropy state. And Sean Carroll has suggested that if the universe completely dies away into absolute nothingness, that's very much like that low entropy state again. Oh. So your idea of the universe having another beginning from its ending, it may not be as simple as gravity collapses things back together again. It may be something a little more subtle, where you're at a very low state of disorder, and that kicks off another universe. That is definitely an idea. Okay. Phew. All right. So maybe everything is not going to end. (laughs) Well, this Sean Carroll guy seemed to have some positive news, so I sought him out. Sean Carroll is a professor of physics at the California Institute of Technology. Did we get you right? Almost, yes. (laughs) Uh, What would you take issue with? It's a subtle difference between the cyclic universe and one that keeps evolving but never does the same thing over and over again. It's not like it expands and contracts and so forth. I had a model that I proposed with a graduate student of mine, Jennifer Chen. We imagined the scenario where the universe was expanding and emptying out. What do you mean emptying out? Well, things are going apart. Galaxies are moving away from each other. 
the average amount of stuff in any one part of the universe is decreasing. And then the question is, does it become cold and desolate and nothing ever happens? Or is it possible that quantum fluctuations could actually create a little baby universe in this big empty universe? Mm -hmm. You imagine that for the most part, everything is empty and nothing is happening, but occasionally a little fluctuation of space-time itself can pinch off a tiny little universe that starts off as hot and dense and expands very rapidly, just like what we think happened to us. And we wouldn't even know. There is a moment when it comes into existence that we call the Big Bang. There was something before that. So we could be one of these baby universes from a previous parent universe, which is big and cold and empty. Which would be much, much bigger than what we think of as the universe. Yes, that's right. Wow. In your TED Talk, you said at the time of the Big Bang, all the 100 billion galaxies that are in our universe, each of which contains about 100 billion stars, were condensed into a region this big. And there you hold your fingers apart about the width of a golf ball. Right. Centimeter or two, yeah. <laughs> That's everything. I just can't even conceive of <laughs> squeezing a city block into a golf ball, much less 100 billion galaxies. That must mean that we're mostly made of nothing, right? Well, this is what happens if you extrapolate physics as we know it back that far into the past. But there's no reason to think that physics as we know it is any good back there. <laughs> but matter gets squeezed into very, very small regions. In a neutron star which we know are very real, mm -hmm. there's no electrons and protons because they all collapse into neutrons, which take up less space than atoms do. And then if you pile up enough matter onto a neutron star, it collapses to a black hole, which as far as we know, just becomes more and more dense as time goes on in the center near the singularity, approaching infinite density. That's probably not true. It's probably not really infinite, but our Ability to understand what's going on gives out by the time you get that close to those big densities. So a block of tungsten steel or something that I think of as very dense is really like a wisp of vapor on this universal continuum you're talking about of density? Yes and no. That block of tungsten is made of atoms, and your everyday notion of atoms, like the solar system with the sun at the middle and the planets going around it, that's just wrong. That's not how matter works. It works according to the rules of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. The atom is the quantum wave function of the electrons, and that wave function takes up space. <laughs> I'm going to pretend I understood what you just said Good. and move forward. <laughs> <laughs> There's also another kind of particle called boson, like the photon, the particle of light, or the Higgs boson, which we famously found a couple of years ago. And bosons don't take up space at all. You can just pile them on top of each other. So if you turn something from fermions into bosons, then you can make it small as you want. So maybe that golf ball was something more boson-like? It could be. There's competition between general relativity, which says that everything was very small, and particle physics, which says that some things can't be squeezed any smaller. Something has to go. We don't really know what the ultimate rules are. Huh. I wonder if I could just ask you personally, what makes a person want to venture so far from home? It's just curiosity the desire to know how things really are. The kinds of physics that I do have no practical implications whatsoever. They're not going to make a better Higgs boson iPhone or anything like that. Are you really confident in that? I'm 100% confident in that, yeah. <laughs> that there's yeah. never going to be any use for what you're finding out. Never going to be any use. No, not really. Except that it helps us understand who we are and our place sure, in sure. the wider universe. I think that's an important thing about being human. There's more to being human than better iPhones. But why are you this kind of scientist and not an entomologist, say? Oh, because it's simpler to be a physicist than to be an entomologist. I mean, <laughs> have you ever looked at biology textbooks? I mean, they're a mess. So much stuff going on. 
You have to memorize all these things. Physics and cosmology are about principles and a small number of inputs giving you this wonderfully rich and complex output. I always tell my students, cosmology is the right science to specialize in for people with very short attention spans. That's so funny because my brain has a much easier time getting around a spider's behavior than dark matter. Well, because physics is very simple, we can learn a lot about it. We've gone enormously further towards understanding physics than biology. And because of that, we're in realms that we have no everyday experience of seeing. It seems very counterintuitive and abstract only because it's actually very simple and understandable. This last one's a bit of a confession, and I've never told this to anyone before. I'm an atheist like you, probably since high school, and I took one science class in college called bioastronomy. And there was a moment where the professor was talking about the universe. I don't even remember exactly what he said, but I saw the universe and I felt awe, not just at the size, but at the order of things. And for a moment, I just felt like there's a God. (laughs) (laughs) And I went on with my life and didn't change my beliefs. But I I was wondering if you ever had a moment like that, of doubt in your doubts. For me, moments like that are not like that. I mean, in almost every conception of God that human beings have entertained, those gods really cared about the human being. And to contemplate the cosmos with 100 billion galaxies, each of which has 100 billion stars in it, just like the sun, and to say, yeah, this has something to do with me, (laughs) just seems a little backwards. Yeah. Intellectually, I completely agree with you. It was just this moment of a feeling. And maybe it was just that I've been given the concept of God my whole childhood. So I just had this moment of awe, and that's what my brain chose to call it. Yeah, I like that moment of awe. I think that we should feel awe and wonder. I prefer wonder because awe sounds passive, whereas wonder is the first step towards wondering why something is true, and then let's ask some questions about it. And I think that the more you learn, the more we come to terms with how the universe actually is, the greater that feeling of wonder really becomes. Look Homeward Angel by Thomas Wolfe A destiny that leads the English to the Dutch is strange enough, but one that leads from Epsom into Pennsylvania and thence into the hills that shut in Altamont over the proud choral cry of the cock and the soft stone smile of an angel is touched by that dark miracle of chance which makes new magic in a dusty world. Each of us is all the sums he has not counted. Subtract us into nakedness and night again, and you shall see begin in Crete 4,000 years ago the love that ended yesterday in Texas. The seed of our destruction will blossom in the desert, The election of our cure grows by a mountain rock, and our lives are haunted by a Georgia slattern because a London cut purse went unhung. Each moment is the fruit of 40,000 years. The minute-winning days like flies buzz home to death, and every moment is a window on all time. Carlin is the host of the Hardcore History and Common Sense Podcasts. In your last episode, you quoted Will Durant, 
on the ignorant prejudice of a historian who would reduce many peoples to a paragraph. But doesn't a historian have to be reductive? I mean, you could write a whole encyclopedia about one person. His point was there are all these people, you know, Ammonites, Moabites. These days, you're lucky if anybody's even heard of them. Whereas to those people, there's nothing more important. You're the center of the universe from your perspective. And to think that somewhere down the road, somebody's going to consider you to be merely a satellite in somebody else's universe. Right. But the question remains for you, when you're putting your stories together, sometimes you do have to make a paragraph out of something huge. You know, any paragraph out of your podcast, someone could zoom in on it, right? Absolutely. I mean, you could do a whole show on the Moabites. Tell me about your approach. I usually try to give multiple perspectives, sometimes looking at the individual and then zooming out and trying to give a bigger picture. Oftentimes in big stories, like the one we did on the First World War, mm -hmm. the people who are the decision makers are working at it from a much larger horizon. And while they may know that there's some poor guy with a broken hip dying in a trench because of decisions they made, they really can't do their jobs focusing on that. That's an interesting point. There's the question of the long view of the historian, but you're also looking at the actors and what's their view and are they taking a long view or are they being very short-sighted? We're trying to show both those realities. And then if we can, when I'm lucky and had enough cups of coffee, <laughs> sometimes we can knit them together. Is there a danger in looking at history at overemphasizing strife? Oh, absolutely. And that's been much talked about. Yeah. You brought up Durant. Durant discusses the fact that most of life, people are getting married, having children, raising children, right. living their lives. The stuff between the wars. Yes, yeah, all that stuff gets lost because we record the wars and the violence and the big events. But I think we're geared that way. That's why the ratings go skyrocket when we've got a Gulf War. Sure. Oh, it's definitely more interesting. Right. And I think it's only natural for historians to look at the picture and notice the giant explosion, as opposed to the little guy living his life. A nice, quiet dinner. Right. Yeah. When I was a news reporter, there used to be a line, if it bleeds, it leads. Sure. But there's a sense where it would be like if someone was trying to say, what is America like? And they just took action movies as their data. Well, sure. And <laughs> if you pick up a real academic history book these days, they're very concerned with much smaller more pedestrian things that help illuminate the realities of life for the majority of these people right. in between these giant explosions. It's absolutely important. But I think that tends to leave out your average Joes and Janes who aren't particularly interested in all that stuff. But you tell them a big story about right. the astronauts go to the moon or whatever <laughs> it is, and then you can rope people in. Yeah. You know, I've now spent the better part of three weeks immersed in the strange mobile village of TV news coming to the site in the wake of an atrocity. And it's been weird and sad. And there's two things I think that can get lost, one thing for us and one thing for you. The thing for us is, in the air of competitive pressure, it's very easy to lose sight of the fact that we are dealing with human beings with inner lives and loves and hopes and dreams. And that competitive pressure, that desire to get the story can make us forget there is a space for grace and dignity. The other thing that gets lost, I think if you're watching all this coverage, is that we don't cover the planes that land, as we say in the industry. That means what happened here, what happened in Paris, is blessedly rare. Don't forget that as you go about your life. You know, when you look back on time, it becomes compressed, like an accordion being pushed in. And all of a sudden, the only thing that gets noticed down the road are the bigger events. If we looked at our own time period on a timeline a thousand years from now, it's going to look like we had the First World War, the Second World War, the Cold War, the War on Terror, and here we are. I mean, boom, boom, boom. It's going to look like it happened in a minute and a half. And even the most popular podcast won't be mentioned. That's right. <laughs> when you look at those timelines and you see just those big events, you need to realize that just like now, there's a bazillion little things going on in the interim that have just been lost. It's the difference between reading about the Second World War today 
or living through it and reading the newspaper every single day when you wake up during it. In another interview, you said, it wasn't anything I thought when I was a little kid that this is what I wanted to do, but you turn around and you've been there 10 years on this certain path, and that's how I got into journalism and other opportunities sprung up from there. I hear you saying there that it's hard to see history when you're in it. Oh, absolutely. There's an old line that journalism is the first draft of history. I think there must be like an estuary point where it's still part journalism. <laughs> right. My dad said, if you could look back on your life and try to trace a line from where you started, you never could because there's way too much serendipity and all these things that happen that you just couldn't plan for. And you get caromed off into strange directions. Have you ever been on the Autopia ride at Disneyland? I don't think so. Kids love it because they can steer this car, but there's a track. So you have the illusion of control until the curve you're supposed to take arrives, and then you make the <laughs> turn at Albuquerque, whether you right. want to or not. Well, that raises a question. How much of your love of history is just for the fun of it, and how much is for the usefulness? Neither. I mean, I was born this way. Right. I think a lot of people are like that with different things. Sure. If you look at like a math person, the way they see the world is mathematical, and they couldn't imagine how a person who's not mathematical even organizes their thoughts. Right. Well, that's how history is for me. And history is a word that makes it sound academic, but it's really just trying to factor context in. If you're watching a soap opera and you've never seen it before and you tune in today, it's going to take you a while to catch up. Once you catch up, you can begin to make connections and understand why things are the way they are. That's how my mind works. And I don't understand how people who don't <laughs> think like that think. Right. But I guess what I'm asking there is, is knowing history useful? You have no choice, but I'm just saying, if we're on those rails anyway, and we can't really... I don't know how other people make sense of the world without understanding how we got to where we are now. And by the way, I do think it's useful, but I could see the defeatist attitude, this idea that things just have to go their own way. Historians still debate the usefulness of learning history, whether there's any real intrinsic value in knowing the past other than the entertainment value. <laughs> Some historians suggest that there is no practical use for it because the number of unique variables will overwhelm any other thing you can come up with. I see this on television all the time. Someone will say, in the Second World War, we learned that you can't appease dictators. No, it just teaches you you couldn't appease that guy anymore. Right. It doesn't have any larger, but that's how people misuse this idea that experience teaches us X when the variables are not accounted for. Right. It's like they say the devil can quote scripture to his own purpose. People can cherry pick some point in history to advance whatever cause they want. I mean, maybe that's one of the values of knowing history is just that you can catch people when they're cheating. For me, it's a much more holistic thing. It helps me make sense of my own era and my own life. A lot of people tweet that after hearing that first World War show, when they thought they were having a bad day, they realized they <laughs> weren't really having such a bad day. Yeah. That may be more of the practical application than anything else, giving you a baseline for, look how good we really have it. Yeah. I saw somebody tweeted last year, I wanted to go see 12 Years a Slave and it was sold out. Can you imagine anything worse? <laughs> it's all relative, right? Yeah. Do you have a good memory? Because I don't, and I think that's one reason I'm more of a philosopher than a historian. And I feel what history is is an augmentation to our collective memory. And it's this important thing that keeps us from being rootless. You know, I have a different sort of opinion. A thousand years from now, are people still going to think Hitler was this terrible, evil figure that we think he is when there's no more emotion? Or will they start looking at the upsides of Hitler as horrible and monstrous an <laughs> idea as that is? But that's what we've done with everyone else. What if we didn't forget? What if the way society felt in 1946 
when the Holocaust had been so recent and the death camps had been open and everyone was seeing these pictures in Life and Time magazine, what if the pain of all those people in the post-Second World War world was as strong today as it was that oh, day? so interesting. I mean, a lot of the strife is from people who won't forget, like Israel and Palestinians. It's an inability to move on. It's almost like something that protects you from PTSD on a societal level. Mm -hmm. If we maintained the level of pain and suffering that people closer to the events felt, we'd be unable to function. What if every day felt like the day after 9-11? Yeah, that would not be good. Historical memory has a place, but sometimes you have to forget to move forward. It's the kind of intellectual memory that maybe washes away a little of the emotion. Or gets altered. I mean, I always think of the oral historians, tribal peoples who didn't have writing, and they often exaggerate so that by the time 25 people had played the telephone game, right. it's no longer such a traumatic event. You've transformed 9-11 into something that can be digested into in a, a way fable. That, yeah, well, that doesn't traumatize you anymore. Uh -huh. But it's also to make the story better, right? I think of the way my dad tells family stories and how I've seen them evolve over the years, and the story gets better and better and less and less cleaving to the truth. On the Hardcore History Podcast, I pick stories that I know are awesome to begin with, so that I'm already 50% of the way to a good show, and I'd have to mess it up. Right. But your father's working with material that might have to be bumped up a little bit. <laughs> when you pick Genghis Khan as your subject... Are you saying my family stories are not that good? I, I think all family stories <laughs> have a place. I think there's going to be very few history books written about my family stories or yours, but who knows? Yeah. How much of history is about extrapolating forward for you, looking back to see what's coming? There's a decent amount of that. The people who think historically understand what led up to where they are now, which tends to illuminate the road in front of you a little bit better. Does that mean it predicts the future? No. Does the fact that it rained the night before tell you who's going to win the horse race? No, but it changes the odds. Sure. You start looking for the mudder. Yeah. If you're a betting person. You take that into account. Yeah, all the odds are set based on all those horses' past performance. That's history. When I say it helps me make sense of things, maybe that's a different way of saying just what you're saying, that I think I know where we're going because of the way it all seems to be laid out. Yeah. Talking about the distance of history and how that allows us to cope, do you think, if this is not getting too personal, do you think that's part of the attraction to you, that it's sort of a safer place to be? No, I think for me, the attraction is what it says about human beings and what people went through. The Great Depression is something I can not only imagine what it would be like to live through that, but also how does that change the individuals who live through it? And then how does that change that generation? And then when they raise their children differently because of how they were changed, how does that change the next generation? Uh -huh. That's how you begin to see all the little dots adding up into something much larger. I remember my great aunt explaining that everybody used to lay out a bunch of little jars on the table. And when you got home from your job with your pay, the first jar might be your rent. And you put everything that the first jar needed. Mm -hmm. And then whatever was left over, you could fill the second jar, which might be food. And the last jar was luxuries. We did a show called Old School Toughness, which is about a historical meme. Do hard times make tougher people? And what is toughness? And if we had another Great Depression today, would that toughen up this generation? If it did, would that be a good thing? I mean, uh -huh. those are the questions that fascinate me. A hundred years ago, that's a question for a historian. But today, history is so much like science instead of a humanity. But there really isn't anyone who stepped <laughs> in to fill the vacuum. So that's my little niche I get to play around in because you can't measure it. You can't know, but you could ask a whole bunch of interesting, hopefully, questions about it, especially if you're not qualified. <laughs> that makes it easier, right? Yeah, it absolutely gives free reign to everything, doesn't <laughs> it? 
And then I always put myself in those situations and think, how would I have fared in those trenches in the First World War? And usually I come up to the same conclusion, no matter what I'm asking myself about <laughs> poorly. <laughs> yeah, I would have just passed out. Yeah, run. Yeah. Run is what I would do. Okay, at this point in the conversation, Dan and I talked about the Flipcraft's parable. It's from the Maltese Falcon by Dashiell Hammett, and I'll read you a condensed version of it. A man named Flipcraft had left his real estate office in Tacoma to go to luncheon one day and had never returned. He went like that, like a fist, when you open your hand. Well, that was in 1922. In 1927, I was with one of the big detective agencies in Seattle. Mrs. Flipcraft came in and told us somebody had seen a man in Spokane who looked a lot like her husband. I went over there. It was Flipcraft, all right. Here's what had happened to him. Going to lunch, he passed an office building that was being put up, just a skeleton. A beam or something fell eight or ten stories down and smacked the sidewalk alongside him. It brushed pretty close to him, but didn't touch him, though a piece of the sidewalk was chipped off and flew up and hit his cheek. He still had the scar when I saw him. He rubbed it with his finger, well, affectionately when he told me about it. He was scared stiff, of course, but he was more shocked than really frightened. He felt like somebody had taken the lid off life and let him look at the works. The life he knew was a clean, orderly, sane, responsible affair. Now a falling beam had shown him that life was fundamentally none of these things. He, the good citizen, husband, father, could be wiped out between office and restaurant by the accident of a falling beam. He knew then that men died at haphazard like that and lived only while blind chance spared them. That insensibly ordering his affairs, he had got out of step and not into step with life. He went to Seattle that afternoon, and from there by boat to San Francisco. For a couple of years, he wandered around and then drifted back to the Northwest and settled in Spokane and got married. His second wife didn't look like the first, but they were more alike than they were different. You know, the kind of women that play fair games of golf and bridge and like new salad recipes. He wasn't sorry for what he had done. It seemed reasonable enough to him. I don't think he even knew he had settled back naturally into the same groove he had jumped out of in Tacoma. But that's the part of it I always liked. He adjusted himself to beams falling, and then no more of them fell. And he adjusted himself to them not falling. Well, there's no universal application to this. That's how that guy reacted, but doesn't tell you anything about how the other guy would. You take Somerset Maugham's The Razor's Edge, where the main character is changed by the First World War, but he never goes back. The reason I gave you that is I feel like that was sort of my experience after 9-11. And I feel like it was the experience of a lot of people that everything's different now. I remember people posting, saying, I'm going to be different now, and my life is not going to be about petty things anymore. And then a year later, their life is exactly what it was before. 9-11 and the period we're in now, for lack of a better word, the War on Terror, Reminds me a lot of the 1950s Cold War era. It's just you substitute terrorism for communism. I think we were moving along in a direction when 9-11 happened, and something just had to happen at that time period for us to hit that gas pedal to keep it going. If the Soviet Union had never fallen, and if communism had gotten really bad again, we would be doing, I think, the same thing we're doing now. 
you think we always just need an other to be pushing up against? Is that what you're saying? Either we need another or there's just going to be another. I mean, yeah. I think if you're the tough kid in the class, there's always going to be some other tough kid. And if you beat up the tough kid, well, there's the next toughest kid in the class. This may be the reality of superpowers over eras. Competitors and problems and threats spring up. But the funny thing is, as you deal with them, they begin to look a little like the way you dealt with the last threat. Right. I don't think it's a grand conspiracy. I just think things ping off of each other in certain ways. We were heading in these directions anyway. The 9-11 attacks just added gasoline. These directions being? A more surveillance society. People say things are different because a single individual can cause much more damage than they used to be able to cause. And you know, these aren't about great states. But when I was a kid, we talked about hidden arms caches and communist spies working at government. I mean, we were still talking about individuals, and it feels a lot like the Red Scare era. The bad guys are different, but what society has to do to respond to them, the methods seem remarkably similar if you account for the changes in technology. I think the thing that freaks governments out more than anything is the ability that we have to do what we're doing right here. The internet and this kind of communication is the biggest challenge that modern governments face. They'd love to have things the way they used to be. Right. Look at China and Iran and Russia and all these countries that are desperate to get a handle on free communication. It's remarkably difficult to run governments with this kind of interaction going on and the ability of people like us to reach such large audiences. We're kind of heroes, is what you're saying. Uh, kind of a couple of heroic guys. Is that what you got out of that? <laughs> That's interesting. Okay. <laughs> My friend Ted is good at the long view. Once I apologized to him, I forget what I did. He said, that's okay, Dan. I have a lot of data points on you. Isn't that nice? He's saying he's known me a long time and is not going to define me by one mistake. A relationship is like a pointillist painting. Every new moment, another dot, a data point. At the start, the whole canvas is blank, and you get to look at a few dots and imagine the rest. Think of the first dates you've been on. They can be stressful, right? Because the other doesn't have a lot of data points on you. So everything you say has a lot of import. Every moment is defining because it's all the other person has to go on. One misstep and the other person will get you all wrong. You know that and it freezes you up a little and then your date thinks, wow, you're kind of frozen. It matters the order of things. 95% of what you say might be smart, but if you're with a stranger and the first thing that comes out happens to be dumb, they're not likely to stick around for the rest. In the failure episode, we talked about how most comedians and poker players ran good in the beginning, and so decided to stay with it. That's another story of data points and extrapolation. The ones who ran bad in the beginning with no other data imagined a future of more of the same and quit, and some of them were surely wrong. If someone cuts you off in traffic, you think, asshole. All you know is one thing, and you build a whole person out of it. But what else can we do? We have to extrapolate in life. A test drive, a job interview, a political debate, a date, the first episode of a new TV show, or the first few pages of a book. There's no doubt mistakes are made, but there's no alternative. Life's just not long enough to give everyone a fair shake. 
Well, here we are at the casino, Passenger 57. You ever play roulette? More of a poker guy. You ever play roulette? Yeah, I know you like roulette. I was just thinking we could try some different, maybe a little craps. Roulette. Fine, here. What do you want to put your money on? Always bet on black. You know there are an equal number of reds, though, right? Always bet on black. And with the green zero, you're going to get not black 52% of the time. Always bet on black. You're going to lose your money in the long run. Bet on black. Fine. Here. No more bets. 22 black even. Oh, hey, nice. Thanks, passenger 57. Bright light said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. Annie Duke is an author, lecturer, and professional poker player with many big wins, including the 2004 Tournament of Champions. Sorry for the audio quality on this one. When I tell people I play poker, they'll say, I don't really like gambling. And I say, well, I don't like gambling either. And when I try and make the explanations of how poker is different from gambling, they just look at me like I'm some degenerate rationalizing an addiction. Do you have to make this case sometimes? And how would you make that case? I do have to make that case all the time. The first place I always go is, do you consider the stock market gambling? Well, poker is very similar because you're investing money at a positive return because you're playing against other people and not the house. But sometimes they are very insistent that poker is a game of luck and not of skill. Right. Michael Mavison has written about luck versus skill. And he makes the point that as you narrow the skill gap in anything, luck appears to be a greater factor. If I take the New York Yankees and pit them against a little league team and they play 100 games, the Yankees are going to beat the little league team 100 times. Yeah. But what if I put them against the Boston Red Sox? Okay. They're going to be around splitting the Yankees coming out slightly ahead. Right. It's not like the game became less skillful. It's going to be harder for me to predict on a given day because the skill gap is quite narrow between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in poker. The edges are smaller, so it looks like there's a lot of luck. My argument, the casinos are playing all these games of chance, but because they have a 2% edge, you would never say the casino is gambling. No, the casino is not gambling because right. they have an edge at everything. They're just making money. <laughs> right. And so in a given night of poker play, luck may play a huge factor, but over a thousand nights... Poker is a game of pure skill because all the luck is evened out for every player. Yeah. The statistics are if you're playing limit poker and you have a pretty big edge over the game, if I play for eight hours in a game, I'll have come out winning around 55% of the time. Mm -hmm. By the time I've reached 1,500 hours of play, I'm approaching the limit of 100% that I'll have won. Right. But at the end of eight hours, I'm going to be losing 45-ish percent of the time. So you know that in your head. How well do you take it on those 45% nights? Mm, Well, that's part of the skill of poker. So one of the biggest problems that poker players face is something called tilt. Mm -hmm. I lose a hand that I feel like I was supposed to win or a few hands in a row. And that makes me so upset that I just play really poorly and at a disadvantage, which of course plays on itself. I'm getting more and more upset, which causes me to play worse. Now, I don't actually really do that. Right. There were lots of players who were much more talented than I was. 
but I was perfectly happy playing in games with them because they were spending so little of their time playing their A game because of these emotional factors. So how do you overcome tilt? A lot of it has to do with understanding the physiology. When you're in a cold state, you can use that to your advantage. What's a cold state? A cold state is when you're not emotional. Okay. You know, like we're in a cold state right now, I think. No, I'm talking to Annie Duke. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's like when you're not mad or sad. Or... Okay. So when you're in a hot state like that, your limbic system is lit up. What people call the lizard brain, Right. that's flashing. The best thing to do at that point is to get up and walk away from the table. Right. Another thing that you can do when you're getting into that state, try to engage your frontal cortex and start doing some real analysis of your play thinking about whether I could have done something differently and really start engaging that thinking part. The frontal cortex is the newest part of our brain. When you have your frontal lobe going, there's an inhibitory response. Your limbic system just shuts down and vice versa. So the content of your thought doesn't even really matter so much. You could just start thinking about something completely unrelated to poker and it still might help. Yeah, theoretically, you could start doing math problems, I suppose. Right. We have all those aphorisms like take 10 deep breaths, you know, sleep on it, mm -hmm. because people intuitively understand that when you're upset, you don't think straight. But the opposite is true, too. If you're thinking straight, you tend not to be emotional. I want to go back to this 54%, 46% thing, because that comes up so much in poker. Your famous hand against Greg Raymer when you had to think about whether to fold your, you had tens? I had two tens, yeah. Right. And you tell a story on the moth where... Phil Helmuth, 12-time world champion, reader of souls, says to me, Annie, I know you had to have jacks or tens on that hand. Don't you know Raymer had to have ace-king? It was totally obvious. And all the confidence that I had found just went out of me. Now, of course, Phil was wrong, and you ended up going on to win the whole tournament. But even if he had been right, someone could say, you didn't make too big a mistake. You just missed a coin flip. Yes. Had Greg Raymer had ace-king in that spot, it would have been a terrible, terrible mistake. Indeed, it is a coin flip. Right. It's 11 to 10, my favor. So explain why that would be such a mistake. Poker is not a decision about whether you have the best hand. It's a decision about whether you're making money. And there's two pieces to that. What percentage of the time will I win the hand? And how much money am I making when I do? Mm -hmm. So let's just call it 50-50. Okay. I'm going to win one time for every one time that I lose. If I have to put in, let's say, $100 to win $100, I'm going to break even. Mm -hmm. Now, that was not the situation I was in here. The situation I was in here was there was 450000 in the pot, and I had to call 150000 So if I'm in a coin flip situation, that means that every time I lose, I'm going to lose 150 but every time I win, I'm going to win 450 Right. It's 150% return on my money. Nobody on earth would be crazy <laughs> enough to give that up. Yeah. And this is really a metaphor for everything outside of poker. If you look at the way that VCs act. That's venture capitalists. They invest in 20 startups, and if they win at one, they're doing really well. Right. The return of the one success is so great. Any given startup is a big favor to be shut down within two years. The VCs understand that, and they spread their money across so many of those, because when you get the Uber... Right. You're getting more than 20 to 1 on that call. They're getting way more than 20 to 1 on that call. Do you find this long-term thinking affecting your life outside of poker? Yeah, I think one of the things that we're poorest at is thinking about time. How do you deal with trying to satisfy a feeling good in the moment 
versus feeling good in the long run. Right. Anyone who's on a diet and has a cookie sitting in front of them, making a decision about whether to buy the more expensive car or put the money into retirement. Yeah. I mean, I can go on and on. It's like yeah. our whole lives. <laughs> so now, even though you think about this stuff and talk about this stuff a lot, do you still make the mistake? I still make the mistake, but I think I probably make it less than other people because I understand some really good strategies for avoiding these problems. I'll just throw two out to you. Mm -hmm. One is called the Ulysses contract. The sirens. No man who hears their song can escape. They will draw us to the rocks and destroy us. We must flee Ulysses now. Quick, get some wax and stop up the ears of all the men. Tell them not to look to the right nor to the left, but to row. Row for their lives. Lights, tie me to the mast. What's that? Whatever orders I may give, do not obey them. What are you going to do? I want to hear their song. But you are mad, you listen. Tie me to the mast! And from that comes the concept of Ulysses' contract. You can do them in two ways. One is you can actually take the temptation away, keeping junk food out of your house when you're on a diet, giving your keys to someone before you go out to a bar. Right. You can also make public declarations. Those are good within companies if you have a particular strategy to make sure that you've declared that because they'll launch the marketing strategy and a week and a half later, sales haven't gone up and they change course. Right. That wasn't enough time because you feel bad in that moment. Poker players use Ulysses contracts. Mm -hmm. They'll set a limit on how much they can lose in a given night. And so they'll only bring a certain amount of money with them or they'll have made that declaration. Although that's not exactly tying your hands to the mast, right? Well, you can't literally always tie your hands to the mask. Right. I mean, look, if I take all the cookies out of my house, it doesn't mean I'm not going to drive the store. Yeah, I always said gambling should be legal everywhere, but ATMs should be illegal in casinos. Right. Because people just break that contract with themselves exactly. every time. Exactly. The ATM doesn't make it harder to stick to it. But when you are making these public declarations, you are better at it. Right. And then the second thing you can do is substitution strategies. I really like chocolate, but I'm on a diet. So what I can do is train myself to feel good about something different than the feeling of eating the chocolate. I have really trained myself to feel like when I'm making an unusual choice that I know is hard for most people, I feel really good. And that allows me to align my present goal of feeling good with my future goal of being better. Right. It's not that I'm going, well, I'm going to think about future me. I'm still thinking about present me, but I'm changing what it is that makes present me feel awesome. We don't think about the future very clearly. Mm -hmm. In fact, the part of the brain that we engage when we think about our future selves happens to be the same part that we engage when we think about other people. Ah. Our future selves are literally strangers to us. Well, I looked up who did that study Annie was talking about, and it was Hal Hirschfield, a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. When I think about myself, we see more blood flow to a certain part of the brain than when I think about another person. So we ran a study where people had to make judgments about themselves today and then another person today and then another person in the future and then themselves in the future. And in fact, the neural activation elicited by thoughts of the future self was really more on par with the neural activation that was elicited by thinking about other people. Really on the brain level, the future self kind of looks like another person. I never get enough sleep. I stay up late at night because I'm night guy. <laughs> night guy wants to stay up late. What about getting up after five hours sleep? Oh, that's morning guy's problem. That's not my problem. I'm night guy. I stay up as late as I want. So you get up in the morning, you're warm, you're exhausted, groggy. Oh, I hate that night guy. 
See, night guy always screws morning guy. There's nothing morning guy can do. The only thing morning guy can do is try and oversleep often enough so that day guy loses his job and night guy has no money to go out anymore. The question arose from considering why people fail to save for retirement at mm -hmm. a rate that they could be saving or even doing things like not saving at the rate at which their employer will match their contributions. If my employer matches my contributions up to 4% and I'm only saving 3%, then I'm leaving money on the table. Free money, essentially. If that future self is like a stranger, mm -hmm. then saving for your future self is no different than giving money away to somebody you don't know today. Would it be fair to say that we're just bad at thinking about the future in general, and it's just particularly odd when it results in us treating our own selves as others? Yeah, I think that is fair. One of the strongest issues that human beings face is that we have all of these difficulties considering the future. We think that now is the most important. You ask people, would you want to volunteer right now for some sort of mundane task? No, 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 that doesn't sound good. I don't want to do that. What about in the future? Sure, I'll have plenty of time and I won't care as much in the future. And it turns out the future becomes the present and you have very similar feelings. Right. The example you just gave is an interesting one because there's a way of thinking about the future that's not helpful, that's a cheat, where you offload all the present things you should do to the mm -hmm. future self yep. and you get to fantasize. And I've done this myself many times. I'm going to start this diet tomorrow. I'm going to do this work I have to do tomorrow. Yep. So in the present, you get the joy of the resolution. <laughs> and, and then the future comes and <laughs> same. Same issue. But then you have used this idea. I read about the future avatars for helping people lose weight. Yeah. So you've used it actually in a productive way. Yeah. We've taken people who are trying to lose weight and some of them every day get an email showing them what they will look like if they continue down the path of losing weight or what they'll look like if they're gaining weight. Mm -hmm. And others won't get those images. That data is still coming in. I'm uh, telling everyone it was a huge success. <laughs> <laughs> I can have a fantasy that that will be the case. <laughs> You're right that there's a fantasy component there. However, you only get those images if, in fact, you've been losing weight. If you're making progress. Right. That highlights future consequences. Turns out it's really easy to make an exception out of everything that happens today. What do you mean? I know that if I want to lose weight, I need to cut down on my calorie intake. And that makes sense overall. But today, you know, it's really hot outside. <laughs> and it seems like I deserve an ice cream. And I know that doesn't fit into the big picture, but today is a different day. Right. And what you do today, you can't detect the change. It's not like tonight I look heavier. Right. But over time, that adds up. And that's what we're hoping to help people recognize. There's actually some great research by a woman named Gabrielle Otengen from NYU who's looked at the ironic effects of positive fantasies on behavior. You have people fantasize about something, you know, going on the diet. Ah, I'll look so good once I'm a size smaller. Or asking out that special someone. Life will be different if I'm with them. And then people ironically, like you said, they get some sort of satisfaction out of imagining their life better. And that takes away the motivation to actually do the things that you need to do to realize right. that fantasy. You've got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Okay, well, I guess we better talk to Gabriel Otengen, who is a professor of psychology at NYU and the author of Rethinking Positive Thinking. 
All of us sometimes give in to the pleasure of just indulging positive, wishful dreaming. It's so much easier to think about things I'm going to do tomorrow than actually doing them. It sure is. I started to investigate these dreams and fantasies. And I found that these positive fantasies actually had the opposite effect what people thought. Women who had enrolled in a weight reduction program, the more they had fantasized about weight loss, the less weight. Patients who had a hip replacement, the more they had fantasized about an easy recovery, the less well were the university graduates, the more they fantasized about an easy transition into work life, the fewer job offers they got, the fewer dollars they earned. Or the more positively students fantasized about doing well in an exam, the less well they did. As pleasurable as the positive fantasies are, they're actually hurting us. What's happening there? In your fantasies, you are already putting yourself in the gold box and you relax. And energy you would need for actually implementing your fantasies goes down. You're saying all these things that are counter to what pop psychology tells us. Be positive. Relax. You're saying don't relax. Don't be so positive. Exactly. Instead of just indulging in your dreams, shift gears. So Gabrielle and her team came up with a method for doing this, and they called it... Mental contrasting with implementation intentions. But realizing that that might not be so marketable, they simplified it to... Whoop, which means wish, outcome, obstacle, plan. You take a moment for yourself, let the world be out there, and you say, what is my wish? What do I want for today? Or what do I want for the next week? What do I want in my life? Then you say, what would be the best outcome? This is the first O right. in the whoop. And then you imagine, really vividly experience that best outcome. And afterwards, you switch gears. You say, what is it in me that stops me from experiencing that outcome? What hinders me? An old hang-up, an irrational belief, whatever. Identify it. And then you imagine that happening. So that's the second O. And if these obstacles are surmountable, you really commit to fulfilling your wishes. And if you say, I just cannot overcome this obstacle, you can postpone, you can delegate, or you can actually let go and have resources free for more promising enterprises. That's nice. So you're speaking against another very American ideal, which is never give up. And you're saying, no, sometimes it's okay. You should give up. Very true. Can these obstacles be external? Well, find the obstacle in yourself. Okay. Because those you can change. Right. If you say it's the fault of the system or my boss or my husband or my children or something, you will not be able to change that. But right. you can change yourself. Yeah. You can change how you handle your boss. And you say, what could I do to overcome that obstacle? And very often in your thoughts and images, when you imagine that obstacle, you realize, ah, that I can do. And then you make an if-then plan. And that's then the P. And that goes like, if, and now you imagine the obstacle, uh -huh. then I will, and now you imagine the behavior to overcome the obstacle. This instills non-conscious processes. So the party on Saturday night will be an obstacle if you have the wish to do well on Tuesday for your exam. Mm -hmm. So it will be not a fun party anymore. It will be the obstacle to doing well on the exam. So you change without that you are even aware of it. So really, you're not speaking against positive thinking. That's the W-O part, which everybody does. You're just saying we have to add the O-P part onto it. That's exactly right. These positive daydreams are necessary to give our action direction. Otherwise, we wouldn't know where to go. 
but fantasies won't bring you towards fulfillment. We can't just woe, we have to op with our woes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Is there really a difference between wish and outcome, the W-O? I was wondering if you're just avoiding it being WAP <laughs> because it's a slur. <laughs> no, no, no. There is a real... When you formulate a wish, let's say, become a doctor, and then you say, what would be the best outcome of becoming a doctor? And then you can really experience that outcome. And sometimes that will bring you even more understanding that this is the right wish. But sometimes the emotions around this outcome are flat. And you imagine sitting in the hospital mm. and you feel, hmm. Is that really what I want? And often you experience this outcome in a way so that you feel, I got the wrong wish. And then you can go right back and adjust the wish. So imagining the outcome is super important. Mm -hmm. So people say Gabrielle is tough and she wants us to think about obstacles and planning. But you're also saying don't rush past the wish phase. You've got to spend some time with that. That's important. Whoop works as a four-step procedure and as a three-step procedure, uh -huh. it doesn't work anymore. You really need to go through the whole exercise in the prescribed order. Now, I find it interesting that the last step of this is plan. I would expect there to be an action to put the plan in effect, like a whoop -ah. But you're saying once you do the whoop, you're going to automatically start taking the steps? Exactly. And you're not even that concerned, it sounds like, with the why. Like, why is this in me? Or trying to figure out why am I resistant to doing my work? You just say we have to come up with the what. And then... There are so many histories we can confabulate about why I'm lazy or why I'm reluctant or why right. I'm unfriendly or why I'm urging for chocolate or something, you know, <laughs> yeah. tons of stories. It doesn't help us. So not only are you taking on positive thinking, but you're also going against the idea of analysis. Yes. Like we don't it's need true. to figure it out. Yes. We understand now that the imagery part of whoop is actually doing the trick, not analysis. Analysis doesn't propel us into action. It might give us a lot of hypotheses about our parents or our background, but it doesn't put us into action. What we need is help to do what we know we should do, but don't. Mm -hmm. This is not only interesting, but you might have changed my life. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because I do think I've always taken the approach of wanting to understand my problems. And part of that, I think, is healthy curiosity. But part of it, I do think, might be good just to let go of that, focus on some what's a little bit more. Yeah, you know, if you want to get into action, try boop. <laughs> and if you just want to idle about the world, then do whatever you did before and enjoy it. And coming back to what you said about how you live your days, you will see that if you do whoop in the morning, you will live your days much more aware and, and much more on the way to fulfilling your wishes than if you just rush into a day and respond and respond and you get out of the day and you don't really know what you have done. So you take action and you live your life rather than being pushed and pulled around. Oh man, I would have kept that reference train going as long as I could, but the only people Gabrielle referred to are dead, so it ends with her. Go check out whoopmylife.org to get much more detail on the method. I said before that an average life is 28,000 days. But if you take that time and factor out the time spent asleep, at work, commuting, 
getting dressed, studying, taking tests, brushing your teeth, gargling, flossing, shaving, bathing, urinating, defecating, wiping, clipping your nails, getting your hair cut, picking up after your kids or your pet or yourself, dealing with telemarketers, deleting spam, flipping through the channels, watching commercials, looking for the remote or your phone or wallet or keys, filling your gas tank, filling out forms, changing your oil, doing laundry, vacuuming, dusting, washing dishes, taking out the garbage, paying bills, paying your taxes, putting paper in your printer, standing in line, sitting in waiting rooms, riding in elevators, standing on escalators, talking to tech support, being sick, going to the doctor or the dentist, going to weddings or funerals or shows out of obligation, writing thank you notes, exercising, making small talk, waiting politely to make your exit, feeling guilty or afraid. We've got less than three weeks. Seize the day is right. You've got about 20. Use them well. The Longview is not always a settled affair. Comedian Jimmy Dore and a disgruntled audience member once had a disagreement about whose Longview to take. I was performing in Boston, and there's a young lady in the second row of tables. She had her cell phone out, and it was so bright. It's like someone's putting a spotlight on her face. Look, this woman is not paying attention to you. Look at her. She's typing. So I said, if anybody has any mail they haven't opened yet or some bills you want to pay, or if you feel like, I don't know, texting or whatever, now would be a great time to do it. (laughs) Like this young lady right here. (laughs) She's taking advantage of being 10 feet away from a live performer, and she's texting. That's what I'm talking about. So people laughed. Unless you're a performer or especially a comedian because comedy is so delicate, doesn't know the frustrations that you'll feel when something like that happens. So to be able to handle it that gently, I thought that was nice. And she put her phone away, and that was that. We Everybody moved on with our life. Okay. <clears throat> Cut to, I, I got an email. Dear Mr. Door, I caught your show in Boston last weekend. I was in town with my girlfriend to visit her dying grandfather, at Mass General Hospital. I decided to take her to a comedy show to lighten the mood of an otherwise depressing weekend. During your show, she received a text from her friend asking how her grandfather was doing. She decided to send a reply. That is when you stopped your show and called her rude and juvenile. She was very embarrassed to the point of bursting into tears. She very rarely sends text messages. (laughs) So I don't know if I said rude and juvenile. Maybe I did. Do you remember the crying? No, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. While I agree that this was not the best time to send text messages, (laughs) (laughs) I think you were a little harsh. Her sending a text message doesn't take away from your show one bit. (laughs) 
It's a passive act. It didn't bother anyone except apparently you. She is a very sweet and somewhat naive girl. We had never been to a comedy show before. She did not intend to disrupt your act or disrespect you in any way. You are a very funny comedian. Huh. See, even a stop clock is right twice a day. <laughs> I think you should change that part of your act to make it more of a joke instead of mean. You don't always know the circumstances behind the reasons people do the things they do. So my response was, dear Greg, sorry about your girlfriend. Sorry about her grandpa. My niece actually died last summer of a brain tumor. She was 12, and it was horrible and heartbreaking. I actually have a bone disease that has collapsed five of my vertebrae since 2006. I'm actually much shorter than I used to be. I guess what I'm trying to say, Greg, is that your girlfriend's pain is ordinary. And texting during the show is extremely distracting and rude. It was distracting to the people sitting beside her, the people behind her, and oh yeah, it was distracting to me, the performer, doing a live show five feet from her fucking head. When you are at a live performance, they make an announcement that says, quote, so that you don't disrupt the performers or the audience members seated around you, please, no cell phone news or texting during the show. That doesn't come with a disclaimer unless you have someone sick in your family and you almost never send a text regularly and only if you are so self-involved and unaware that you think it's not distracting to hold an illuminated phone at eye level for minutes at a time and texting for what seems like forever, then you can go ahead and text. Get up, go outside the room, and text, you idiot, and don't bother <laughs> performers when you act rude. By the way, I did handle it with humor. Unless you choose to pretend that everybody didn't laugh hysterically, I did handle it in a nice way and a funny way. Grow up, asshole. <laughs> Instead of apologizing, you have the balls to ask for one yourself. So here it is. I'm sorry you and your self-centered girlfriend are rude douchebags with a victim mentality who don't have the good sense to apologize when they are rude in public. So you have to be set straight twice by the same guy. You should go home tonight and slap your parents. They did a shit job of raising you. Please stay out of comedy clubs. Love it, love it, wife. Most of us are okay. I believe that. But the tiny percentage who aren't do a lot of damage. Let's say it's 1%. Everybody hates spam. So why does it exist? It exists because of the tiny percentage of people it works on. Because of that stupid 1%, we all have to get hundreds of emails a day from Viagra merchants and Russian brides and Nigerian princes. That 1% has got to go. You may think there's no way to do that. But you're wrong. All we have to do is pull up a truck in every major city with a sign on the side that says, Make $10,000 a week without lifting a finger. For details, enter truck. When it's full, we drive them all to a special school. 
And it's not just the suckers. There's another tiny percentage of us that requires all the rest of us to lock our doors and clutch our pepper spray when walking alone. Whenever disaster strikes, I can't help but think of the silver lining. When there's a plane crash or monsoon, people focus on all the innocent victims, and I feel for them too. But I can't help thinking, well, they probably weren't all angels. There must have been a few racists or tailgaters in there. Wouldn't it be a small comfort when we get bad news to know the full story? Good evening. Tragedy today. A tornado touched down in Galveston, killing 37 decent people and one child molester. Our heartfelt condolences to the victims' families and a big high five to all the children. I'm getting an update. More good news. One of the 37 was a dog owner who routinely left crap on the sidewalk. Two liked to yell Freebird at rock concerts, four were bad tippers, and one had horrible breath and talked right in your face. More as it develops. The long view is so useful. It helps us figure out how to organize ourselves. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. It helps us sort out large truth from misleading anecdotes, to know how things really are, which medicines work and which don't. And individually it helps us not only to not waste time, but to be humble, to keep things in perspective. We're all the cinematographers of our own lives. Sometimes it's good to zoom in when you're dancing or looking at your child or a hummingbird. But sometimes it's good to zoom out, say at the dentist or the night before an exam or if you have a headache. We worry so much about such small things. A man is upset because he got a spot on his tie, because the tie is his whole field of vision. Pull back 10 or 20 feet and it's nothing. Pull back 10 or 20 miles and the whole person becomes insignificant. And that's the danger of the long view. Once I had a really bad night of cards, and I'm driving home at 3 in the morning, and I remember I just looked up at the moon, and I tried to think of the moon not just as this light in the sky, but what the moon actually is, this giant spinning sphere. And I just tried to think about how big the world is, how small I am. And instead of comforting me, it just added a layer of shame to my bad mood. Like, not, <laughs> not only do I feel bad, but it's ridiculous that I feel bad. Do you ever find that long view thinking can backfire or have bad effects? I do, which is why most of the strategies that I suggest are all about living in the moment. Mm -hmm. You're right. If you look up in the moon and you start thinking about eternity or (laughs) 10 years from now, it can become incredibly overwhelming. So I'm a big live in the moment person. Mm -hmm. It's just that I've sat down and really thought through How do you align being in the present, which we all are by definition, with what you want for yourself in the future? Right. Because if you're just purely in the moment, you could be impulsive and make lots Uh of terrible decisions. Exactly. I think it's hard for people to think about the future future, like the size of the universe, because it just makes us feel small and insignificant. Right. But if we think about it within the context of our own lives, so we set the horizon properly, let's say at five years from now. As opposed to eternity. (laughs) Um, Sit down and think about what your goals are. You're working on a new book called The Big Picture. I am. Part six has a title people might be surprised to find in a book from a physicist. Yes. Part six is called Caring and Mattering. It's 
really about how we locate meaning in a world that is really just a whole bunch of quantum mechanical particles bumping into each other according to the laws of physics. Well, I very much appreciate you taking this on. You know, many scientists, I feel like, tell us the hard truths and don't <laughs> stick around to try and clean up the blubbering messes they make of us. There's a danger at looking at things from such a distance, and that is that we will feel like we're of no consequence. As far as the universe is concerned, we are of very little consequence. The universe doesn't care that much about us. On the other hand, that's okay. Who said that the whole universe should care about you and me? Mm -hmm. It's much more important that you and I care about you and me meaning and mattering. They're not out there in the universe to be discovered. They're things that we human beings have the responsibility to construct. Right. I mean, we don't live in that whole giant picture. We're in this small space. Think of it the other way around. I remember being on Science Friday once, and mm -hmm. Ira Plato was trying to tease me, and he said, you cosmologists tell me that 70% of the universe is dark energy and 25% is... <laughs> dark matter, only leaving 5% to be ordinary matter that we know and love. So are you really telling me that we don't understand 95% <laughs> of the universe? And I said, that's the wrong way to look at it. The truth is, we understand 5% of the universe. That is really awesome. A hundred years ago, we understood 0%. Ira's being very glass 95% empty. Exactly. <laughs> the universe is very big compared to us. It's very old compared to us. It will last a lot longer than we will. But we have the ability to capture an image of that universe and hold it in our minds, which we should be very proud of. One of the personal aspects of being a scientist, you just need to swim in this doubt. We have no idea whether anything is forever or not. You sound very chipper about all of it, though. I think it's beautiful. I do, too. But there's another part of me that could think of, oh, what's the point of anything? Do you ever get somebody's mad at you for some petty thing and you just want to shake them and say, you know, all the stars are going to burn out one day? <laughs> Wasn't that a Woody Allen line where as a young kid, Woody gets depressed and he says, The universe, universe is expanding. Someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. His mother says, What is that your business? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. <laughs> <laughs> That's important to realize in cosmology. I often get that question. Are we expanding along with the universe? The answer is not yet. We may, eventually. The universe isn't just expanding, it's actually accelerating. This was only discovered like 10 years ago. We have no idea how this works yet. As this expansion force accelerates, it may actually become strong enough to start expanding planets away from stars, to start ripping the Milky Way galaxy apart, mm -hmm. and maybe at some point actually being able to rip apart electrons from the nuclei of atoms. So there'd be a moment where matter itself couldn't hold together against uh -huh. the expansion of the universe, and matter would just go poof. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes I'll be sort of lost in these things, and the cat just has to be fed. <laughs> It's wonderful to contemplate. Uh -huh. And in the end, you still need to feed the cat. The long view doesn't have to lead you to nihilism. It can also lead you to gratitude, to the understanding that your individual existence is the result of a near impossible billions of years winning streak. To start with, every woman has seven million eggs. Every ejaculation, 100 million sperm. You had to win two lotteries to be born. Your two parents had to win four lotteries, and your four grandparents eight lotteries, and so on, going back 100,000 years. 
and then millions of years of hominids, and millions more of apes, and billions of years of whatever life forms we were before that. And that's just in the womb. Once born, all our ancestors had to avoid all the perils of life, predators and wars and disease and famine and accidents for all the years prior to their reproducing. Then all the mates they beat out for the position, and also all the mates they lost to. If any one person in those thousands of generations had ended up with anyone else, had not had their hearts broken the exact ways they did, you would not be. Remember that the next time your heart is broken. Lives depend on it. When you wish to be better looking, you're wishing to not exist. You're wishing for different ancestors, and different ancestors means no you. When you wish to be taller or have a smaller nose or thicker hair or resent anything at all, really, you are disrespecting the fact that you are a centillions to one long shot. You're nitpicking miracles. The universe has expanded and stars have exploded and arranged themselves in just such a way to allow this planet to sustain life. And then billions of years later, you are born into the tiny sliver of history where there is civilization and art and technology and medicine. And you have complaints? Whatever you get in this life, your very existence is the result of an eternity of triumphs. Whatever ill befalls you, you are kind of due. So maybe try to take it in stride. That's the show. Thanks to everyone who took the time to speak with me. You can find lots of information and links to them in the program notes on myaclonicjerk.com. Speaking of the website, big, big thanks to Girly Salguero, who has revamped the entire thing. It looks great now. Check it out. Thanks also to Brian Lotz and Alex Rubenstein for production assistance. We have two winners this time for the song suggestion contest. Tanaz Sasuni for History Repeating and David Wirth for the Galaxy Song. Thanks to them and everyone else who sent in ideas. And thank you for listening. If you don't want to miss future episodes, please subscribe on iTunes and maybe leave a review while you're there. This is part one of a two-parter. Part two is Patience. It will be episode 20, and it'll be out in three or four years. Next episode, Race. Bye-bye for now. Hey, fuckface, I'm calling you now. What's going on? Is this your phone number that I called or is this your Skype? I might have called you on this phone. Maybe I'm the fuckface. Somebody's the fuckface, Dan. Now the plot thickens.